From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. We're revisiting the UVA game, taking a look at, uh, taking a little closer look, looking back at some things now that I've gone through it at least three times through each thing, and uh, reviewed that and have a little bit more detail than what I was able to provide on the Hot Takes edition. And uh, ultimately, I mean, I'd say that things looked a little better on review than I'd thought in the Hot Takes podcast in many areas across the board. For the most part, it was more encouraging on a second watch and a third watch than on the first one, with one exception. We'll get to that uh, in a little bit. Actually, you could say arguably two exceptions, but uh, but overall, I thought things were a little better than I than I had realized when I watched it the first time defensively in particular and we'll, we'll look at defense first now before I do that I want to thank my first sponsor and that is EPR creations EPR creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning they're actually uh, building building out a very simple site for me here shortly inspired by the tight camera angles at Doak Campbell Stadium and at uh in, in this last Virginia game, I'm launching a new project that uh, is going to be of interest to everybody. I will announce it uh, as soon as we're, we're done with that. I've got a, a little bit of work I've got to do on my end before they're done with this. But EPR Creations is who I, I deal with on this stuff. If you need any sort of website development or online strategy planning, deal with EPR Creations. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. So talking defense... First thing, run fits were significantly improved. Now, it's mostly because, as far as I could tell, mostly because they, they simplified. Uh, there was less two-gapping in this game than they've been doing. Uh, and two-gapping makes things a little bit muddier for the linebackers. In particular, you have to, you have to make the, the defensive lineman right because the defensive lineman's going to be turned one way or another at different points, and you have to make sure that if, if he gets pushed out of that gap, you're in it. And, uh, and so... When you play one gap, you can play you can trigger downhill quicker, uh, because when you're playing two gap, as I talked about previously, you you're not supposed to trigger that quickly. Uh, but they were able to get downhill and, and do a little better in the in the run fits, both on the defensive line and on the off and on the in the linebacker position. The linebackers still had a rough game. I thought this was actually Lars Woodby's worst worst game of the three. Uh, he's still the best. He's still been the best backer they've had, but. When you're not getting good performance from that position, and I still think it's because they're poorly coached at that position, uh, you know it is it is what it is. Uh, but you know you can't you can't blame all those kids for 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 those mistakes. Now there were a few busts, and it looked like the backers were properly triggering downhill when they weren't. Because, for example, there's there's a uh, there's one one play where they're playing quarters in the back end, and then you see two backers blitz. And it's very clearly a mistake because one of the backers shouldn't have blitzed, and it's got to be the front side backer who's on the side of the of the running back. He's got to stay. He's got to be responsible for that back and responsible for curl flat and all of that in that coverage, because you, you, it's unsound otherwise. And as it turns out, that backer went as well. It's a missed check or a missed you know missed call there. And that's on him. And it turns out that that backer then got out of position, wound up running behind the uh, the ball carrier, 
that couldn't uh, couldn't couldn't catch him in time and sort of falls off his back and right into one of Florida State's most important defensive players lower end. And now Josh Kando is out for the season, which is really unfortunate because going back and looking at that, Josh Kando played some really good football in this game. This was one of the best uh, best performances that he, he was putting on one of his best games in a Florida State uniform. And then he's asked to play in space linebacker misses his uh, his assignment and then winds up running behind the play as often is the case in that in, in, with the, with that particular backer and well you know he made the best tackle of his career unfortunately into the lower half of uh, of Kando so yeah that 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 loss of Josh Kando is really really going to impact Florida State's defensive uh, capacity as the year goes on because he, he really was coming on. And, and if this defense was going to turn the corner, a lot of it was going to have to be because Kando was, was starting to really uh, do some things on the, on the defensive line and was becoming a handful for, for offensive tackles. And now that's not an option. Uh, 11 played pretty well. And when, when 13 wasn't out there, I mean, I thought J Rob was, was okay. But and, and he continues to at different points flash, but he's not as consistent, particularly in his run fits and, and, and his ability to stop the run. He doesn't use his length well enough. And, uh, you know, it's just it's it, it hurts not to have your most talented edge guy, especially when you're shot, when you're real thin at edge. So. So, yeah, I thought Durden played better in this game than I thought on the first watch. Uh, I, you know, he flashes and he's flashed in each game, particularly in, in key pass rush situations. He really does a good job at times in that, but he's been inconsistent in run fits and, and has, has been washed and, and in the wrong gap way too often. And he still had a few of those in this game, but for the most part, he was, he was better in this game. And I thought, uh, overall played pretty well, couple costly missed assignments in his gap responsibility. There's one in particular, uh, on Virginia's last drive where they had about a 13, 14 yard run. And that was straight up uh, Durden's gap. He's got to make sure he fills, fills the a gap there. And he, he ended up getting pushed out of it and can't let that happen. And he actually spun out of it. Uh, and you know, that's something that is a no, no Odell coaches his defensive tackles never to spin against the run. And you know, that that's why, because it opens up a big seam. I still think five needs to sit. Uh, I, I, 42 has has looked good every time he's come on the field. He looked good in the spring. And I just wonder, what are you getting from five that you can't get from 42 right now, given all the missed assignments, given all the uh, the sloppy play there? 42 comes on the field. Every time 42 comes on the field, by the way, it's a blitz. He's blitzing, which tells you that they really think he can. he's got a good feel for it as a blitzer. But, uh, but every time he comes on the field, he blitzes and then he goes off the field again. And he needs to he needs to get more time along with 56. And as they play more, uh, as they play more spread teams from here on out, you're going to see a lot more of 56 just because of the matchups there anyway. Uh, and, and we'll see how five responds to that. Uh, this week it was, it did become obvious. I'd gotten a text on Sunday that it was happening, but it, the, the text literally said, don't tell anyone <laughs> that this is happening. So I had to sit on it. And then Monday it, you know, it was obvious based on who they were working with, but ultimately uh, this is the right move. And that is that Lars Woodby and Leonard Warner are switching spots. And that is, that is exactly what needed to happen before the Virginia game, at least 
it was becoming clear that it really wasn't working with those two guys in their spots, in their respective spots. And, and in my film session, my film breakdown uh, on Patreon, uh, in my f- film breakdown there for the ULM game, I consistently, I repeatedly highlighted that 35 was not quite in the right position. There were a number of places where he either got nosy and lost contain or he just something wasn't quite right. And a lot of people will present this as, well, Lars Woodby should never have been inside. And listen, the kid didn't want to play inside. I mean, that's not where he feels most comfortable, but he he was willing to do it. And he was the best inside backer they had. But this a lot of people frame this as, well, you know, obviously Woodby should be outside. This is more, from what I can tell, based on the d- defensive looks, this is more because 35 hasn't looked all that good outside. So ultimately, you're putting six outside where obviously we know he can play, but he also was, like I said, the best guy on the inside that they had. You're putting him outside in order to be able to move 35 inside where he can be one of your better guys. Uh, where he can be a thumper inside and still have some coverage capacity and all of that, he he becomes a uh, a good player again. Putting him in uh, on the inside, where honestly, over the last couple of games, you look at the Virginia game and you look at uh, the ULM game in particular, thirty five didn't look real good outside, and uh, there were times where he was taken advantage of in coverage and in space. And you've got to have somebody in this defense that can cover there a little bit. And ultimately putting six there, especially against the spread spread teams that they're going to see, that that alleviates that. And with uh, Jim Levitt basically taking over how the defense is going to run, I'll, a little more on that later, Levitt's version of the 3-4 has typically had one of those backers be more of a rover. It's almost a 3-3 look. And yeah, that guy's going to come up on the line of scrimmage at times. He's going to blitz. He's going to do, do different things. But instead of being a big 3-4 where you've got a defensive end outside linebacker hybrid, which is what Warner is at that spot, Levitt has typically employed a, a little bit smaller end uh, on that or, or outside linebacker at that spot who's not an end backer hybrid, but a safety backer hybrid. And that's what Lars Woodby is is he's he's a backer who leans closer to a safety than than vice versa and then you put the bigger guy inside which isn't always the case and if you go with a big three four your inside backers are usually your smaller ones because you're you're loading up a little bit more with those defensive tackles that are occupying blockers and you want guys that can cover at the two backer positions because you're doing so much with those edge guys as edge setters and it's almost a 5-2 rather than a 3-4. And this moves them closer to a 3-3 than a than a 5-2, which is basically what they've been running. And I'll be honest, Florida State, I think it's pretty clear that they just haven't been... It's not a place where you, you typically run a, a, a 5-2 Oki type front very well. I mean, you look at what they did in 2013, and Jimbo Fisher wanted to go to the 5-2 type personnel, the big Oki personnel and do that and it was disastrous early in the year with uh with Boston College nearly nearly beating that team and then they transitioned to a 425 they moved one of the backers outside into that defensive end spot so instead of having Christian Jones on the inside you remember they moved him to defensive end to the outside this is a similar move and they put him down and they went to a 4-2-5 instead of a 5-2 basically as the base and then they shut everybody down. 
And you wonder what's going to happen with this particular move. I mean, are you going to see a, a, a massive change immediately just because of moving a couple guys and changing up a little bit of what you're doing personnel wise? And, and I think that's entirely possible because what, what you've got is you've got you've got to find a way to have consistent run fits on your on the interior, which has been a, a bit of an issue. And more, con- more, more concerning has been their inability to stop the short passing game and to get aggressive in the passing game. And ultimately, this might allow them to do both. So by getting Lars Woodby up in there and letting him be a little bit more of a, uh, of a rover, sort of a, th- of a third safety on the field in that, in that role, now you can, you can do some things coverage-wise that you couldn't before, and maybe you can get a little bit more aggressive, which is really what they need to do. I mean, they need to attack more in the secondary. They need to press. They need to force teams. If you're going to beat us, you're going to beat us over top. And I mean, again, it's if you have great talent in the secondary, and they really believe they do, if you've got all that great talent in the secondary, why are you having those safeties play with so much cushion against those inside slots? against those tight ends and so on. There were a number of times against Virginia where the tight end or, you know, they'd go bunch and they'd run a spacing concept or something. And you'd see somebody come off the ball, run seven yards and turn, and there'd be nobody within five yards of him. There'd be a backer a little bit over, you know, not not matching up. Or there'd be, uh, you know, he'd be in the hole between the backers and one backer would have to have the guy, you know, it's a spacing concept. So the one backer has to have the, the curl, one backer has to have the hank, and then you've got maybe somebody on the other side that's coming in to do something, so that backer actually has to get rid of the hank, which is an over-the-ball, you know, like six yards over-the-ball uh, hook. So one backer gets out of it. That means the safety has to come up hard, but those safeties are staying back because they're terrified of getting beat. And at some point, you have to drum into your secondary, and it appears to me that they've gotten, gotten it drummed into their heads that they don't want to get them. They don't want, you know, you better not get beat deep. Do the opposite. You say, if you get beat, it better be deep. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but with this, with the offensive system that they're running, you want as many possessions as you can get to get, get your rhythm and to force the defense to have to defend that tempo and that pace all game. 11 possessions is just not going to do it. You got to get the ball back to your offense. And, you know, Taggart leaned into what a lot of people outside have been saying about, well, you know, they need to get more time of possession. The defense is getting tired and so on. And Taggart leaned into that. And, you know, even Bryles sort of took one for the team a little bit and talking about, yeah, we need to get, you know, get more time of possession. And Bryles sort of pivoted a little bit and said, yeah, we just need to get first downs. Well, yeah, that's going to do it as far as getting time of possessions, time of possession. And that that basically means that Bryles is basically saying we're not going to slow down. The way to get time of possession is to be more efficient. And he's right about that. But ultimately, the time of possession issue is a non-issue. Time of possession has zero correlation. Actually, depending on the year, it often has a negative correlation with the team that actually wins the game. There's no correlation, no statistically significant correlation between winning time of possession, even by a lot, and winning the game. It doesn't matter. When the clock is running, it does not matter. Now, number of plays can matter. Number of possessions can matter. But time of possession is irrelevant. So, you know, defensively, you know, people talking about, oh, the defense is getting tired late because of the time of possession disparity. It doesn't matter how many, how, whether the clock is running while they're on the field or not. What matters is how many plays they faced. And 72 is below average for 
the number of plays that a defense is going to face in the game. And that's because they only had 11 possessions in this game. But 11 possessions and 72 plays on 11 possessions, that's terrible. That means you're giving up seven plays a possession, basically. You're giving up a bunch of eight, nine play possessions. Defensively, you've got to basically say, look, our offense is top 13 in the country. The more often we can get that offense the ball, the better. Because they actually are, are, are scoring points. So if we can just commit to, we're going to either get a turnover. This is the old Bobby Bowden used to say, hang loose, one of us is fixing to score. And that was the old approach. We're going to play aggressive on defense so that if you beat us over the top, fine. Our offense gets the ball back and we're going to beat you. We're, we're, we're going to score ourselves. We're going to run the ball right down the field. You get that old fast break offense and bam, we're going to score again. And then you're going to get the ball back. And one of us is fixing to score again because you're either going to turn it over against our pressure or you're going to score again. But we're going to get it back and we're going to score again if you score. That was the old approach. And, they, and those teams would choke teams out because they'd score early. Defense, the defense would force a turnover or two, get a three and out, and all of a sudden Florida State would score again, and then it's off to the races. But if you score and then you allow six, seven, eight play drive, and then they kick a field goal or score a touchdown, and then the offense gets back out there and you know they're a little cold and you know maybe they score again, but then it's a six, seven, eight play drive. It's just it doesn't it doesn't lend to to the kind of momentum and the kind of approach that you want, especially if, again, if you've got a top offense, the more times they touch the ball, the better. You obviously don't want to give up a touchdown every time, but if you can basically say, like, the, the way that you've got to play defense, given the way that the offense is played, and again, I talked in the, in the preseason, I'm, I'm one of the few people who actually said, this offense is going to be that good. My, my practice sources were right. They said, this is going to be a top, 50, top 25 offense. They're, it's night and day what we're seeing in, in camp. And they were right. They were absolutely right. Now, part of the reason that it was so night and day is obviously the defense can't stop anybody. But here's the thing. If you are in that position where you've got an offense that now is a top 15 offense, they're number 13 in the country in efficiency, what you do is you say, look, that offense is scoring, say, on half their drives. So if we can... If we can coin flip this and we can say, okay, we're willing to get, we're basically as a defense willing to get, say, take a almost coin flip chance of you, you beat us deep or we get a three and out. You're willing to take that. Take that. That's fine defensively because the three and out just feeds into the offensive efficiency that you have on the other side. And if they beat you deep, the offense gets it again. So that's fine. That's, that's a good way to live. You can, you can survive that way. What you can't survive is your offense is, is really good, but it only gets a few trials. You want to get, again, when you've got a really, when you've got a big advantage on, uh, in something, you want as many trials as possible there. And defensively, they're bad right now. In trying to play, you know, bend but don't break kind of approach in the secondary, they're bad. Not only are they giving up about they're giving up scores on basically half their possessions already, but they're letting they're letting the offense sit cold and get fewer possessions to potentially score even more than that. 
So what you do is you say, well, if we're giving up half the scores on half of our drives anyway, let's go ahead and make sure that we do something great on those other drives. And maybe, maybe we can, by attacking, enforcing a bad thrower, a limited thrower to make downfield throws, maybe, just maybe, we can take that scoring rate per drive down to like 30 or 40%. And we're getting the ball to our offense even more. And the offense isn't going to get less efficient. It's st- that offense is efficient. So you let them keep doing their thing. That's how they need to do this. And, and they just have not done that. And I, I'm, I've been just really shocked by how they've, how they've approached things all season because it, it appeared that, look, if you're going to go with the, the kind of 3-4 look that they're doing, the ideal is that you match that with some really aggressive coverage in the secondary so that you can bring pressure from a lot of different angles once you force teams into pass, passing situations and then that plays right into the offensive, offensive strength of your team. That's, that's what you want. But they haven't done it. And that's what I really expected them to do. And they haven't done it. It's what they should have done. And the other thing is that they are really poor in terms of their zone communication and technique. I mean, the, uh, the most obvious play on that is the wheel route that, that Virginia scored on late. That's, that's a corner's route. It, they're in quarters coverage. It's your base coverage. And the corner chases the outside receiver into the safety's responsibility, which leaves the wheel route from the running back wide open because the corner is expected to be there. That's his zone. And there's got to be some communication there. You pass pass off the one guy to the to the safety, and now you're just sitting in that zone. That should be an interception if he throws that. But th- consistently, you see this. Crossers, switch routes, all those, all all these concepts, guys are running running with them too long. They don't pass them off properly. And then that opens up other problems. Do your job. Communicate. And here's my my question is when man beaters beat your zone coverage, what's the benefit of playing the zone coverage then? Because a crossing route, a switch route, a switch route is where you have an outside wide receiver come to the inside and the inside receiver comes to the outside. So you'll get something like, you know, the post wheel combination. That's a switch, right? You get switch concepts and that sort of thing. When And those are designed to beat man coverage, because it causes problems for teams to, that you have defenders crossing over each other. You know, it turns into rub routes and things like that. But when man beaters are beating your zone, well, then what? What's the point of playing zone? And it's not that they shouldn't play zone. You got to teach it better and you got to hold guys accountable for not running it correctly. Now, I do think that, 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 again, the improvement against the run is a very encouraging thing. And the fact that they have so much talent in the secondary says that they can get better in terms of the rest. But you've got to do a better job with that. It's just, that's the way it is. Before we turn over to the offensive side, I do want to thank my second sponsor, and that is Garage Makeovers, the top-rated garage remodeling company in South Florida. According to both Home Advisor and Angie's List, If you have any needs in South Florida for garage remodeling or anything of the sort, give Nathan at Garage Makeovers a call. Let him know you need some storage or organizational work or any sort of garage makeover work. Let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered Podcast. They do the best job in South Florida. 
you'll be really pleased with your garage. And everybody around you is going to envy your garage. All right, offensively. First and foremost, the offensive line played worse in this game than I thought they did on a first watch. Uh, I, hmm. They, actually, I'm going to shift gears. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start a little bit more with Blackman. So first of all, Blackman did not play well overall in this game. He had way too many easy misses. He missed a lot of bunnies. You got to hit those short throws early in the game. You have to. You got to hit when when you're asked to throw hitches. You got to hit the hitch. When you're asked to throw that that routine play to to Trey McKitty, you got to hit it. You and and you know the the, the screen to Pokey w- uh, Wilson on the last drive. If he gets that ball out on time instead of catching it and then setting his feet and he took so long to get that ball off and then he threw it inaccurately and forced Wilson to jump for it. If he gets that ball out quickly and accurately, it's eight yards and out of bounds. No problem. Instead, Pokey has to jump. Then he ends up because he has to that that wasted half a second that he ends up having to make a move and then try and then instead of just cutting his losses and going out of bounds, which he should have done. He foolishly stayed in bounds, and the, the combination of the bad throw and then Pokey trying to make a play cost him a timeout. And do you think that timeout might have come in handy? Hmm. Might, that probably cost him the game. And again, make an accurate throw there, and it's a non-issue. Obviously, the miss to Terry cost him the chance. To, I mean, that cost him a tie. And what I keep seeing from Blackman is that mechanics are really the problem here. And I, I, I noted some of this in, in the film breakdown uh, in the video stuff, but ultimately my view on this is that Blackman's mechanics, his throwing mechanics have gotten worse. They're worse this year than they were last year. And they were worse last year than they were as a freshman. And honestly, I think a lot of that boils down to his mechanics have gotten worse every year he's been removed from Jimbo Fisher. And say what you want about Fisher, the dude can coach quarterbacks. And listen, I, I know quarterbacks. I, I I've I've worked as a as a private quarterback tutor. I've spent my time. Uh, I, I've I've spent a lot of time learning about the basic biomechanics of the throwing motion, all of these things, and I've learned from some of the best with this. And Jimbo Fisher knows throwing mechanics knows how to teach it, knows how to improve a guy's motion, knows how to keep a guy's motion uh, the way that it should be, and to do it within variation to work so that he's not forcing everybody into a particular uh, into a particular mold. But there are certain fundamentals that just are going to keep you more accurate. And a couple of those that you can see right away with, with Blackman that are not there right now. Number one, look at his back foot. When you go to throw, you want your back foot. It's like a golf swing. You want your back foot to be flat on the ground as you push off through that in, that that back instep up through the up through a bent knee. You don't want to be too tall, and when you start the throw, but through the bent knee, you're going to push from that. In, it's going to go right up into the hips, and then that's going to allow that front your front hip is going to be turning, creating torque between the front hip and the back. Uh, uh, the and the uh, the trailing rib piece of the rib cage, so you're creating that tension in the core, 
and then that goes all the way up through the shoulder. And then as that body opens, as that hip opens, you're transferring that weight from the that's from that flat back foot up through the body. The torque works its way all the way up to the shoulder. You get the elbow into a neutral position as the as the body turns and the arm just whips through and it's the body that creates all of the torque. And I know this is really hard to to describe and you know radio is not you know podcast is not the best uh audio is not the best um uh venue for for this, not the best media for this particular medium for this particular discussion, but just try to imagine that that you know again, those of you who play golf, you want that front hip to rotate open a little bit earlier, create the tension through the core, and then the shoulders follow that. And then you don't want to swing too much from your arms. You're going to get a lot of inaccuracy and a lot of inconsistency. It's the same with throwing. If you're throwing too much from your arm, you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of power and a lot of accuracy in your throw. Uh, and then the other, the final thing here is you want to watch a guy's release so that when that release, when he's releasing the football, you don't come down. You never want to pull down across the ball and certainly not across your body. You want to, to let that arm fire with the, with the, the kinetic energy that's developed through that, that, uh, that torque coming up from the ground and through your hips. You want to, you want that arm to fire and it's going to fire out toward the target, like a whip cracking. And yeah, eventually, you know, gravity is going to take the arm down after it cracks out there. But a lot of very bad coaching will tell quarterbacks to pull the dollar out of the pocket. You know, you reach across your, you want to release that ball and you want to pull the arm down across the body. And, you know, you're reaching down to the front side hip so that you're pulling the dollar out of the front pocket. There's no dollar in that pocket. You never want to get a guy coming down and across the body like that. And if you emphasize that in the throwing motion, you're going to get it, it, it causes all sorts of problems because you're going to throw from the arm. You're going to come across the body and that's going to cause the ball to either sail or it's going to end up going in the dirt low to the left. Well, this is what's happening to James Blackman. If you watch his back foot, his back foot, instead of being flat on the ground when he goes to throw, you're getting the same sort of thing that was happening with DeAndre Francois last year. And that is, he is torquing that, that back foot, and it's, that, that back leg is twisting. And you've, he's only got the, front, the balls of the feet in the ground. That back foot is twisting instead of pushing. So now the back foot twists, and now there's no energy delivered up into the hips. And that means that your that your front leg, your front uh, hip is actually going to be overly closed. It's not going to be opening enough in the the throwing motion. And I'll I'll spend some time on on uh, the video uh, side of this for the, for subscribers for the supporters uh, to um, to see this more more clearly. But when that hip stays a little bit too closed and you're twisting with that back foot, the 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 weight never shifts toward the target. Instead, the weight spins open and now you're going to get more of a spinning motion and you're going to come across your body with that arm and you're going to be coming down again like there's a dollar in the pocket and that's going to lead to that scattershot accuracy. That is precisely what's happening with James Blackman right now. And in my view, it boils down to Fisher was 
if anything, maybe over-concerned at times with making sure that he taught certain mechanics throwing-wise. There are different philosophies about this in, with, with college coaches, and I've spent a lot of time with a lot of college quarterback coaches and picking their brains on what, how do you coach it. And a lot of coaches basically say, well, you know, in my view, once you get to a certain age, you can't really coach the throwing motion. It's an eight. And if a guy doesn't have, you know, I don't really worry about coaching above the, above the waist, say. And Walt Bell was one of these guys. Walt was one of those guys who said, I, I coach, uh, you know, I try to get good footwork in the pocket and that's about it. That's all you really can do because the guy, you know, is a thrower or he's not. And then you get guys, Phil Longo, the, the quarterback's coach and offense coordinator in North Carolina, I asked him, what do you do in terms of, you know, training? Are you a footwork guy in terms of really working on establishing platform or do you work on release or whatever? And he said, I, I don't really work throwing drills at all on this stuff. I recruit throwers. If you can't, if you are not an accurate thrower, if, if you can't throw, make the throws in my offense, then I won't recruit you. But I got to, I got to get a guy that can, that can th make the throws in my offense. And then I just, we, we, there's not enough time in practice to focus on, you know, improving him as a thrower. Really. You just have to make sure that he knows where to go and, and that ultimately the footwork is, is timed up with what you want. And that I haven't spent enough time with Bryles in terms of his, approach on that specific thing but looking at his at the drills that he does and looking at his drill tape and how he coaches his quarterbacks that seems to be the approach that that Kendall Bryles takes as well which is look if you want a guy that can make the, if, if you want a quarterback at the college level there's not enough time to mess with you know coaching each independent throwing mechanic uh, you got to you got to get a guy that can throw and generally speaking, that's that, that 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 works as long as you as long as you recruit a guy that can that 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 isn't raw. But Blackman came in really raw, and right now I think his mechanics. It's worth actually taking some time, you know, taking a little bit of time to say no, 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 no. See, look, your back foot here. This is what's killing your accuracy, and your your hip turn here, and also you're not letting the arm whip out, and you're trying to pull the arm down and through and that's causing all sorts of problems and you know this again I think is what's going on there that said all that leads up to as much as Blackman made some mistakes here and and cost the team late with some things he was he was better in this game on second watch than I thought he was because the offensive line was significantly worse than I thought they were on first watch, there were quite a few untouched rushers in this game, and you didn't notice them as much because danged if Blackman didn't do some Houdini stuff in the in the pocket. I mean, he Ryan Roberts had a rough game in this game. This is by far the worst that Roberts had played. There were there were at least two occasions, I think three, where he he had a one on one with a guy he was supposed to block and literally didn't touch him, and that guy. Not only didn't he, did he not touch him, but that guy actually took an inside move and didn't get touched. And each of those times, Blackman did not get sacked because he did something in the pocket that is like, wow, I, wow, all right. And he made a positive play out of each one. So while I'm, while I'm saying that Blackman mechanically has a way to go and needs to, you know, there needs to be some, some improvement there in some other respects... Well, you know, he he actually kept them in the game early, in the, in, you know, with with not taking some of those sacks. So 
you know, I thought overall he played better in this game than I thought on my first watch because some of the some of the misses were so obvious. But some of the little things that he did in this game were really good. So, so yeah. Um, worth talking finally about the final play. Went back and took a close look at it. It's a really clever play. I know why they called it. This must have been a, a two-point conversion play or something that they had set, it, set up. But they went unbalanced with the left tackle at the right tackle spot, basically at a, at a uh, tight end spot outside the right tackle. And then you're going to take the tight end who's now lined up as the, right, as the left tackle, and he actually is, is on a drag. And this is designed to be an RPO for, for Akers. This is really clever. And, you know, it probably would have worked if not for the fact that Ryan Roberts apparently didn't get the call or something because everybody else is doing one thing and Roberts pass sets. So he's actually backing up and it turns out he backs up right into the puller from the other side because you've got a pulling guard from that side, Brady Scott, who's supposed to come up and block one of the edge guys while Roberts blocks one of the backers and uh, and. Bellow blocks one of the other edge guys. Instead, by Roberts backing up, not only does he not block his guy, but he keeps Scott from being able to block his guy. So now you've got two unblocked players on the edge and then 75 whiffs. So you've got three unblocked players on the edge. And now Akers, Akers never had a chance. If they, if they get, say, two of those three guys blocked, Akers might have walked in on that play. If Roberts doesn't pass set, it probably scores. And if it doesn't score with Akers walking in, he's got enough time to s sit for a second and hit McKitty, who was coming open on the little on the little drag across. So you know that's that is that's the way that this should have worked, and it didn't. It was a good call, and they got it off. But the helter skelter nature of it, because of of being at the last second. You, you wound up with one really bad missed assignment that cost him. I'm, I, I, I said about as much as I want to say on the tempo stuff. Uh, there's been, you know, quite a bit of debate on social media about, you know, when you get the ball back with, and people keep saying four minutes, they didn't get the ball back with four minutes left. They got the ball with five minutes and 58 seconds. It's six minutes. Six minutes left. You can't just go ball control offense and go three and out there because three and out ball control going slow there is worse. If you run an extra minute, minute and a half in the three plays that you go three and out, then you're actually probably not going to get that last chance to score if they do score. And so them going really quickly there is what gave them a chance to score at the end. So just want to repeat that. And th there are going to be some of you who are going to go, but yeah, but that presumes that they go three and out. Well, yeah, that's because they did go three and out. You have to consider that as a possibility. If you go slow and you go three and out, it's the worst of all worlds. If you go fast and you go three and out, you still give yourself a chance. If you go slow and you get a, a first down, then you're fine. And if you go fast and you get a first down, then you're fine. The one place where you're really not fine is if you go slow and don't get a first down. So that makes that the wrong call. They did the right thing going up tempo on that second to last drive. And that's the end of the story. All right, before I get into the question and answer, brief question and answer portion of the show, I want to thank my third sponsor. That's Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. As you all know from listening to this podcast, he's the best in the business in the greater Jacksonville area. If you're in that area or if you're moving to that area and you need real estate or if you need to sell anything in that area, Louis Marquez is the best in the business. Let him do it. He'll get it done more quickly and at a better price than anybody else. 
let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered Podcast, and uh, he'll make sure you're you're taken extra extra good care of. All right, look at the uh, couple things. Number one, I, I I will give a little tidbit that was given to me, and that is that Levitt is already having a pretty big impact in practice, just in terms of you know the sorts of things that uh, that he he can he can help with. Uh, from from what I understood. And from what I understand, uh, he, there was this moment where he was, you know, he's he's gotten after coaches for letting players walk around, and that's you know, as a as a as an analyst, that's the sort of thing you have to. He can't coach directly, right? He's an analyst, but you can holler at a coach. You know, why are your players walking? Right, that sort of thing. And then apparently, at some point, uh, Levitt this this week already uh, hollered out, "That's why you all suck." Well, <laughs> they need a little bit of that. So, uh, you know, holding coaches accountable is, uh, is, is, is a good thing. Uh, and players hearing that sort of thing is, is also a good thing. All right, as far as question and answer, I got a few questions. Uh, okay, so first is the, the, uh, the next two weeks we play Louisville and NC State. Which is the better team? NC State. NC State is the better team by quite a bit. Uh, they are... Uh, they have one of the best strength programs in the country, and they are really good up front uh, on the offensive line, and are going to give some problem. They're going to be able to run the football a little bit, uh, and they've got some they've got some strength on the defensive line as well, which is going to be a problem for Florida State's offensive line. Uh, and you know they they also you know it's NC State, Florida State struggled with them in recent years, so they're the better team. Uh, Louisville probably has a better quarterback, but ultimately I, I think Louisville is uh, is is sort of uh they're they're in rebuilding mode it's going to take them a little while they're further away than nc state we'll do the louisville preview the louisville preview will release on friday next question do you see Bryles here for at least two more years hmm okay so that is 2020 and 2021 Ooh. i'm gonna go with uh, that's close I'm going to say no. I don't expect Bryles to be there in 2021 uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, it's not clear how much, you know, I, I think this coaching staff is going to get at least one more year just because of the uh, combination of administration changeover and uh, because and, and the money situation with buyouts and all that. Uh, so, you know, and I expect him to be there in 2020. But 2021, I think, again, the, the offensive turnaround will have been so significant two years in a row at Florida State that somebody's going to back up the Brinks truck and probably hire Bryles away. So, and, you know, then there are also another, you know, there are other possibilities that can come into play that I think it, there's just more, more likelihood that he's not at Florida State two more years than, than otherwise. Is it possible? Sure. But I, I, don't, I don't think he and Clements will be here two more years. Uh, next, uh, do you think Taggart is feeling the heat already from fans and media about winning? Uh, yes. Next question. <laughs> it's not even, I mean, yeah, obviously. Uh, th that heat has been communicated to him behind the scenes very clearly. And, you know, obviously he wants to win. He's a, he's a coach. He's very competitive. He wants to win. And so he feels the heat even from himself. But yes, he feels the heat. Um, next question. Do you think the special teams have been borderline impressive? I mean, improved so much from last year. Yes. Well, they were ab abysmal last year. They were horrible, and they've actually been not only above average, they've been good this year. The, the special team, when you're not thinking about special teams, when you're not worrying about special teams, your special teams are good. And 
to this point in the year, have you had any concern in, in, in any phase of the game when Florida State's kicking off or you're going, oh, God, they're going to return it? Or, or when they're punting, are you constantly paranoid that they're going to get it, get it blocked or that they're going to give up a, a long return? No. Are you constantly worried that there's going to be a drop punt every time somebody's back there? No. Are you constantly worried whenever uh, the, the kicker goes out there to kick a, kick a field goal? No. I mean, they're, they're good on special teams. What a tra- turnaround from when uh, from when uh, Hampton was out there and you know was a total waste of coaching uh, a coaching slot. All right, um, final question: What are the chances they can get this defense corrected over the next three weeks, including a bye week? I actually think there's some hope there uh, with as much improvement as we saw against Virginia. And Virginia's not that good an offense, let's be honest. But again, in terms of fitting the run better and all that. And the now looking at the the transition of thirty five going inside and six going outside, if they, it really uh, to me this defense gets immediately better if they just decide to be aggressive in the secondary and come after teams a little bit more, just in terms of of mindset and approach. It's really just a mindset change in that regard more than anything else. And yeah, some you know the, some of the fundamentals are just not very good, and they need to get better on on communication and all that, but. I think they can get this defense significantly better because it's not like they don't have talent. Anytime you have talent, it's easier to get better. So I think there's a reasonable chance that this defense could be at least average by the time they play Clemson. You know, that the talent's there. It's just a matter of getting them to play up to their talent. And, and I think this is where Levitt can really, really help, and in particular getting the linebackers to be uh, at least decent and uh, and to you know play a little bit more into the strength of the of the overall team, not just of the strength of the personnel defensively, which is supposedly your secondary, but the strength overall of your team, which is the secondary and the offense. So I, I think again, they, they there can be a lot of a lot of improvement over the next three weeks. So yeah, I think they can. I don't know if I'd say can they get it fixed or corrected, but they can be a lot better. All right, going to go ahead and wrap there. As always, want to thank my three sponsors. That is EPR Creations, Garage Makeovers, and Luis Marquez of Keller Williams in Jacksonville. And also want to thank those patrons above the, or patrons, above the bleached numbers level. That is Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, and Bert Bertoldi. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.